0: My name is Dario Hasenstab, I have two degrees in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the western bubble. Today we will analyze how to understand self-determination through the lens of the western bubble. Because while western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these we use the concept of the western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic today? Why are we speaking about such an abstract concept of self-determination?
1: Hello, Dario. Well, it is actually a concept that is continuously having an impact on the real world of international relations. It is always floating around in terms of conversations about different regions, different uh, local conflicts. But lately, over the past Two weeks, we have seen it uh, being very much relevant when it comes to Nagorno-Karabakh, the enclave of Armenians within Azerbaijani territory. One day, maybe we can have an episode analyzing that conflict in itself. But the end result is that you've got, over the past three, four years, a 150,000 Armenians um, essentially uh, being removed from Azerbaijani territory, with these past two weeks, over a hundred thousand people um, likely to be leaving Nagorno-Karabakh, and that raises the question of self-determination. Because a lot of people will say, "Hang on, aren't these hundred and fifty thousand people allowed to choose for themselves who rules them? Given that it is such an obviously homogeneous group of, I think, ninety-nine percent Armenians." And why are the Azerbaijanis, the Azeris, capable of actually forcing them out of their ancestral homes? Well, and the answer to that is, of course, Westphalia. Uh, We often talk about beautiful concepts, such as people having the right to determine their own destiny. But in the end, we live in a world ruled by Westphalia. We live in a world ruled by territorial sovereignty. And Nagorno-Karabakh is within sovereign azerbaijani territory and therefore the international community cannot do much about this even if they don't like the idea of a hundred thousand people being removed from their homes because uh, the rules of the game always prioritize the the territorial integrity of a country and what are the facts
0: Self-determination is a concept that refers to the ability of individuals or groups to make choices and decisions about their own lives and to have control over their own destinies. It encompasses the idea that people have the right to determine their own goals, make their own choices and pursue their own paths without undue influence or interference from external sources. The Nagorno-Karabakh conflict is an ethnic and territorial conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh inhabited mostly by ethnic Armenians and seven surrounding districts inhabited mostly by Azerbaijanis until the expulsion during the 1990s. The Nagorno-Karabakh region is entirely claimed and partially controlled by the breakaway republic of Artsakh but is recognized internationally as part of Azerbaijan.
1: What is the bubble?
0: So when we talk about the bubble, um, I mean you summarised it pretty well. Uh, I just read out the fact sheet. Uh, so the conflict, uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan is, uh, well, has its root, long, long before our days. Um, there's, there's a, the history of it is, is fascinating. I once had the, had the, had the privilege of, of kind of, creating a presentation, uh, on the conflict, the conflict analysis class. Um, so it's deep rooted. Um, I, I don't think we need to get into who's right or who's wrong, I think would be incredibly difficult to tell. Um, but what this kind of leads to is um, to a Western reaction or an inter... Well, first of all, an international reaction to this, uh, you know, to the recent developments um, of, you know, Azerbaijan move, creating a... was well, starting a special military operation, moving in, then the, you know, kind of the breakaway republic uh, kind of, well, agreeing to a ceasefire and agreeing to... Uh, basically dissolve until the 1st of January 2024. And uh, as you said, the international community and particularly the Western community is uncomfortable with this. Uh, and I think it's best summarized by the Western press, right? Because you you have this conflict between, well, there are these 100,000 people, um, give or take, uh, who ha- should have the right to self-determination. But at the same time, uh, the United Nations uh, accepts, you know, that territory as Azeri or Azerbaijani territory, which makes it a bit uncomfortable uh, to, to the West. Um, and yeah, very, very confusing. You, you don't have, usually when it comes to these international crises, you have the, the Western media speaking with kind of one voice, right? With either condoning it and criticizing it or expressing sympathy on something. Here you don't have this.
1: It, it it's very interesting the way you phrase it in terms of, oh, um, they should have the right of self-determination. And I think that's, that's, that's a very good way of putting it in terms of our intuition often is, hey, here you've got a people who feel oppressed. Whether they are oppressed or not is a different question. That's, that depends on each specific situation But here there is a group of people relatively easy to recognize ethnically or culturally, religiously. They feel oppressed. And therefore, we want to grant them the ability to choose their own destiny. And that's very much the case here with the of Karabakh. It's very much the case that intuitively the Western press and people hearing news about this have a sense of this is unfair. This is 100,000 people who whose ancestors have lived there for a thousand years in many cases uh, are now kind of forced to leave. That area leave that region and surely that is not morally acceptable however the international system has absolutely no practical answer to this the international system doesn't have a practical method of determining what self-determination actually then would involve the only thing that the international system has is recognizing the borders and then now when people listen to this they will send us enormous amounts of articles by legal scholars trying to find a determination of um, what is a people, when can they choose their own destiny etc etc and there is a huge body of literature trying to get to a practical format of actually identifying the right of self determination and it never gets anywhere in reality in practice because they always run into this Westphalian Obstacle. Even more so, and I'm very happy that you point out that it's not about putting the label bad guys or good guys on here. It's important to remember that in the early 1990s, both sides essentially engaged in this type of ethnic cleansing. Where uh, from um, Armenia, there were about 700,000 Azeris who were being expulsed, uh, who were being essentially pushed out of Armenia and there were about half a million Armenians who were being pushed out of Azerbaijan. This is not a conversation about the good versus the bad or it's not a a conversation about moral absolutes. It's a very complex situation where the international community doesn't have clear answers, but we see a 100,000 people fleeing their ancestral homes and we feel very uncomfortable by that.
0: See, and that's where... I think Western media and the Western general is a bit confused, right? Because there's no good and bad guy. Um, and at least, and this might only be my perception, but uh, also from a Western bubble perspective, right? There is a bit of more sympathy towards Armenians because, you know, Christian, um, Azerbaijan support by Turkey. We're feeling uncomfortable with Turkey. Azerbaijan's also a dictator well you know according to the western definition um so i think we i think in general the west will feel a bit more uncomfortable with azerbaijan um and more comfortable with armenia and uh, i i think especially in the past few years uh, so basically the 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 conflict was basically Kind of frozen. Well, I mean, that, that's a difficult term. My my conflict professor is probably is probably having chills uh, run one over their back because I just used the term frozen conflict. Um, but I think it's what well, most people don't understand what I mean. Um, so, so you had this kind of frozen since the 1990s um and in 2020 it kind of flared up again right in a, and and that was mostly because of Turkish drones you know and Azerbaijan making a lot of money with gas and kind of increasing its military and you had the the shift uh, no, the, you had the scale shifted in in favor of uh, of Azerbaijan for the first time where I remember uh, especially especially in the those days of 2020 of the conflict I thought, I mean, in general, I see the problem with uh, military aggression. However, according to the United Nations, this is this is Azerbaijani land, right? This is recognized by the United Nations that this is Azerbaijan. So, I theoretically, you could see, you know, a UN justified way of 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 reclaiming reclaiming the land for Azerbaijan.
1: Absolutely, which is exactly why you have such a uh, almost un. Unnoticeable reaction, almost a very mild reaction by the international community, in the West, and anyone else, because in the end, this is an internal affair of Azerbaijan. However weird that sounds, given that it's clear that sort of the victims are a hundred thousand Armenians, but there is absolutely no mechanism to do anything about it from an outside perspective. And even if you wanted to do something about it, what are you going to do about it? You can't all of a sudden impose in an island, an independent island. In one territory, despite all the big talk about the right of self determination uh, that we always have in general. It's always one of those things that, in broad terms, we invoke such a term because it sounds intuitively correct. But once you get to a practical reality, it no longer works. Um, On a quick side note, to go back, there's another important aspect for this conversation that you didn't mention, namely that there was a mild shift in armenia away from russia towards uh, the west over the past five years as a result russia traditionally sort of a protector of armenia um, has become a little bit lackluster in its support to put it like that also because russia has geopolitical interest towards turkey and that is relevant for this conversation because you have a political interest that determined the Fate of peoples, right? You have political interests that determine whether it is actually uh, a case where the international community wants to intervene or not. So when Westphalia gets broken, it is because of international, it's because of political interests. If Westphalia gets upheld, it is because of political interests. There is a huge body of evidence that. Self-determination gets, first of all, overruled by Westphalia. And if it doesn't get overruled by Westphalia, it gets overruled by politics. And that's very much uh, in evidence here when it comes to uh, the Armenians in Azerbaijan. That politically, there's basically no support group anymore. A little bit similar to what you see over the past 25, 30 years with respect to the Palestinians. There's no political support for Palestinian self-determination. Therefore, um, the Palestinians are left to their own device
0: yeah, I like this, this flowchart you just created or this um I think you could also call it a, a broken game of rock paper scissors um that uh, Westphalia beats self-determination and global politics beats Westphalia however self-determination in this case doesn't beat global <laughs> politics um <and> I think <laughs> I, I think this this can this can be summarized as maybe maybe the thesis of this episode uh before we move on to to kind of self-determination talk about it in detail there's one more thing that uh, I thought um, was important to discuss, and that's uh, that's the term of ethnic cleansing, um, right? Because so we've, we've now used it uh, both, you know, a couple of times uh, with regards to this. And ethnic cleansing is one of those terms that I always feel a bit uncomfortable with, uh, just as with genocide and with human rights, right? It's one of those vaguely defined terms in in, in international relations. Um, it is defined by the United Nations, right? Uh, where it 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 basically talks about you know the the either forced or kind of threatened to force uh, expulsion of an ethnic group from a certain area. And um, I think that uh, the term ethnic cleansing in itself makes a lot of sense um, to use, right? And especially uh, with, in the context of the Balkan Wars. However, because of that context, there is that word carries a certain weight, right? At least for me, when someone talks about ethnic cleansing... I immediately think of soldiers, basically running through towns, pushing out, like basically checking passports, right? Pushing out everyone who is not of a certain ethnicity, pushing them out, and you know, if, if they're having a good day, they're just sending them away. If they're having a bad day, they're killing them, right? So that's um, at least the images that ethnic cleansing evokes. And this is something, this is a conversation we've had before, right? It's the same with the with the concentra- with the, with the re-education camps in Xinjiang. Which are often referred to as concentration camps, right? Especially as a German, for me, the term concentration camp carries a different, a different meaning. Um, and this is an interesting aspect of this conversation, right? Where I think there's definitely an an aspect of ethnic cleansing happening because people currently are fleeing that area almost because they are worried. They're really generally scared and probably for the very right reasons of the. Well, of the treatment they will be receiving by the Azeri authorities, but then ethnic cleansing as a term here, you know, it's, uh, it's, it evokes other images, and I, I'm always a bit worried about the politicization of then these 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 images.
1: You've always been very consistent, know in in um, right in rightfully pointing out that we have to take good care with terms, and the concentration camps is a very good example. Um, before the episode, we we also briefly mentioned the word apartheid as 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 one of those terms that gets thrown around around willy nilly, without actually taking care of what it actually means. The problem with the word ethnic cleansing, even though it certainly and I in the case of uh, right now the Armenians, there is no evidence that the Azeris are actually pointing their guns systematically. There there will probably be cases in villages of that happening, but. Um, there is no official policy by Azerbaijan to point the guns at the Armenians and say, now you have to leave. I think the formal policy is you can stay, but this is Azerbaijani territory. But this is exactly where uh, I think ethnic cleansing still kind of applies because how do you define it? If your definition is simply, unless a gun is pointed at you, it's not ethnic cleansing, then we need another term that describes this very same process. Because those Armenians right now know that if they stay, life is going to be tough. Even if no one tells them or threatens them that that's going to be the case, right? And I've got the definition here of uh, the UN and uh, taken over by the European Union, which which is a bad definition. because Rendering an area ethnically homogenous by using force or intimidation to remove from a given area persons of another ethnic or religious group and here's the kicker, which is contrary to international law. Um, well, that last bit in international law has once again, complete complete lack of relevance here because international law cannot be applied in these situations. Um, but uh, the intimidation is, of course, a reality that people face. And if you notice that in one year you've got a hundred thousand people living in one area and five years later those hundred thousand people are gone and they all happen to be from one ethnicity from one culture from with one um, identity yeah i mean we can think of another word but it was a matter of ethnic cleansing
0: no, one hundred percent. Again, it's just uh, well. I mean, the definition is terrible, as you said. Uh, throwing together intimidation and the actual use of force, uh, I think is, you know, it, it allows too much room for evoking these these images. But uh, no, one hundred percent. If you if you have a hundred thousand people uh, leaving an area within a few days, right? I mean, uh, I think we talked about it briefly before. It's somewhere. It's estimated that somewhere between sixty 000 and eighty thousand people have already left the uh, the area within the last few days on top of the approximately 50,000 people who have left the area in the past few years. So, uh, yeah, but that was... That was
1: yes. And, and it, it's important to realize here that that whatever term you put on it and whatever your analysis is, uh, without needing to put um, the black hat and the white hat on certain groups like bad guys versus good guys, it is important just to realize that this is a human tragedy. 100,000 people losing their ancestral home. Now basically being left in limbo, hoping that they get some kind of support in Armenia. It is not pleasant to watch. And if you are a victim of that, then you know you don't care what term gets be- is being used to describe it. You're just suffering at the moment. And, and it's always important in international relations not to get too caught up in the abstract conversations, but always realize that you're talking about large groups of human beings who are right now, as we're talking, facing real hardship.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's, let's, let's have a harder cut here and move uh, towards then self-determination. Where does that actually come from? I mean, It's because with, uh, with, with Westphalia, right? So territorial sovereignty, we can point to a specific treaty, which uh, always makes me very happy as an international relations student, right? You get to look at a treaty and uh, a concept uh, comes from that, and then you can use that concept and apply it. Lovely. With self-determination, that's not the case. At least I'm not aware of the treaty of self-determination.
1: No, there isn't. There, Like I said before, there's a huge body of work that has been built up trying to define self-determination. Um, part of the definition has been how do we define people? What is a people? What is a group of individuals together along religious or cultural or ethnic lines? So there is a huge body of work, but there's not one treaty. The modern version, there have been other past... Conversations about the same similar issues, but the modern version comes from the post World War II scenario where um, decolonization was happening. And decolonization was happening regardless of how, whether we th- use the word self determination or not. Politically, once again, politics overriding anything else, it's completely obvious that Europe had lost its mojo, U- Europe had lost its power, and could no longer maintain. Uh, its control over its colonies, that 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 was just a reality, Um, had nothing to do with philosophical conversations, but that in order to put that into a broader moral context, the idea of self-determination was introduced into the literature. And this is one of the reasons why the UN Charter puts emphasis on this, and uh, why an awful lot of documents in the 1940s and 1950s invoke this term, self-determination, basically to say, OK, you had a bunch of white dudes controlling Sub-Saharan Africa. Obviously, that doesn't make any sense. They, they don't belong there. They shouldn't have, shouldn't have been there in the first place. They need to get out. The people of Sub-Saharan Africa or in sort of Asian regions uh, have now the right to uh, determine their own destiny. And, and so it was almost basically putting a framework around the reality that was happening anyway. Now, if you then fast forward to the 21st century, decolonization is no longer a thing. I mean, you know, there's still Gibraltar and third time and some other uh, places like that. But colonization is no longer part of the discussion really. However, um, now it is being applied to the rights of indigenous populations. But once again, what you see is that indigenous populations have a fight already happening. They are already standing up for their interests, for their concerns. They feel often neglected or sometimes even oppressed in certain countries. And they now invoke this idea of self-determination accordingly. But once again, it's politics coming first and then putting a vague concept such as self-determination on top of it.
0: The way this sounds, it reminds me of autonomy right i th- i think i don't know let's see if i can make that claim that uh the modern day version of uh, self determination would be autonomy is that especially these ind- ind- indigenous populations they usually have some form of autonomy um of of, of uh of the areas where they're living it's not entirely a territorial um sovereignty because know, no government likes to give up territorial sovereignty, but I think that autonomy—you you could make that claim—and I mean, this goes back to uh, to Armenia, Azerbaijan, where you have that autonomy. You had the autonomous region, um, which was kind of, which is a compromise, right? It's kind of a limbo between sovereignty and self determination. Let's let's create autonomy. I, can can I make that point?
1: Absolutely, it is a one in which um people try to control their own destiny within a broader framework that they feel doesn't represent them, uh, and and in many cases that is a very valid concern. I mean, we do know unfortunately that right now in twenty twenty three and throughout history there has been a lot of oppression and suffering by minority groups within Westphalian structures. Um now the difference between is the right of self-determination and the oppression of minority groups that are more scattered is of course quite clear so for example if you have a, a population let's say a jewish population in 16th century spain that is scattered throughout spain they cannot claim autonomy because they their identity is not linked to a specific territory within spain they're still oppressed and they're still a problem of the majority overruling a minority and, and and threatening a minority but there is no autonomy conversation to be had but when you have that minority um, centralized or if you like that's that's the focused on one specific area now all of a sudden they can say oh, hang on we can actually draw a little map a sort of westphalian light map inside of this larger westphalian body and we can now say okay let us make our own choices because we have our own interests, we have our own agenda, we have our own identity, leave us alone. And again, in many situations, that makes a lot of sense. In some situations, it's a little bit harder to understand for us from an outside perspective, but in almost every situation, it is actually very difficult to formalize it. So you understand why Nagorno-Karabakh creates an autonomous structure. Because the 99% of the people in there define define themselves as Armenians. But once you actually try to turn that into something internationally accepted, it becomes almost impossible. Because that's not how international relations work. If I uh, take a group of friends, I don't have that many friends, but let's say that I've got a few thousand friends. And uh, we create a little village outside of Madrid and we say... Now, we, we define ourselves as different from the Spanish state. We want our own autonomy. There is no formal process to get to that result, right? There is, how do we define ourselves? Based on what? What are the criteria? Who decides whether those criteria are real? Now, this is exactly what you see over the past 60 years, that you've got this body of literature trying to do that, and they never get anywhere because you cannot... Put your finger exactly on that, on what makes a minority entitled to have that autonomy or not.
0: I, I think I think this example, um, as as unrealistic as it sounds, is actually very good because sometimes you have to take things ad, ad absurdum, right? Where you have to where you have to push the line because if you want to have a definition, you need to have a line. So as you said in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, you have ninety nine percent Armenians. Um, so I think. The majority, you know, if you, if you were to ask 100 people, they would say, yeah, oh, yeah, they should have like 100,000 people, 99% homogeneity. I think they should have the right for self-determination. Okay, what if it is only 50,000 people and only 70% homogeneity? Um, that's a bit different conversation, right? What if it's only 51%, right? Uh, let's, let's push it into the democracy question, right? If it's 51% and let's say 100,000 people, mm, is that self-determination?
1: And and then to make it even more complicated, uh, how do you even define ethnicity? Is it based on who your ancestors were? Is it based on how you identify yourself? Is it based on um, your religion or culture? If it's ethnicity in terms of genes, well, now you're going down a very slippery slope. Uh, So the fact that we can safely say 99% of people were, not anymore, but were Nagorno-Karabakh Armenians, that is also really a vague term once you start start actually getting to the nitty gritty detail of it what you will see is that if you have an opinion poll among those people 99 will define themselves as armenian but hey if he, my, me and my friends um, all of a sudden define ourselves as Balderians, uh then um, we'll who, who, who is to say that that is not the, its own cultural autonomous group right now again to be fair to avoid people sending in angry emails there has been this huge body of literature trying to actually get to answer this question, but it is a question that essentially has no answer despite all the best efforts out there.
0: Yeah, the keyword is trying. Academia, you tried, and I don't think you have succeeded. Um, let's let's take this to the Western bubble aspect. I feel like self-determination is similar to to other concepts, right? It was, I mean, it was created during uh, during decolonization and somehow the west has also taken over that right where self-determination is a western obsession yeah to an extent and particularly because um, you can also introduce this in your daily life right i have the right for self-determination i have my own free will because we value the individual more than the community
1: It, it goes very much along those lines of other concepts like human rights and all that so decolonization was going to happen, but we put a label on it to give it some kind of uh, philosophical justification. Um, the idea, you know, even if no one had ever thought of the concept of self-determination, Sub-Saharan Africa would be independent from Europe in 2023. Self-determination has no impact on there. But we like to have these concepts because it gives a moral stamp on political interests. And it provides some kind of, I don't know, mental clarity to why the world works the way it works. And that can be quite dangerous, right? Because of the vague nature of these concepts. Now, we in the West have this tendency to overvalue, at least overvalue in terms of, in historical terms, um, overvalue the rights of the individual. And if an individual says, my state does not represent me. I feel ethnically or culturally different, I identify as something different, then our Western spidey senses start tingling and we feel that you as an individual have a right to then take your own path. Because we we have very little interest in defending the communal aspect of society, of defending the social group aspect of society. Uh, In the West, we really emphasize that individual nature over everything else, which distinguishes modern Western culture from 99% of human history, right? Where the communal and group thinking was took way greater precedence over the individual rights of, um, of each human being. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem?
0: And this can be incredibly damaging. Um, lucky us, we are currently in the, what's the damage category. Uh, so what... So what is the damage here, right? Because it's a theoretical concept. A theoretical concept can't really hurt that many people. Um, But when we take this from, when we look at this from a Western bubble perspective, what's the damage?
1: What it does, it creates a tendency for people to assert rights that they don't really have, to assert outrage about something that they don't really have. So Nagorno-Karabakh, the outrage, or at least our concern, outrage is probably never a good thing, but our deep concern should be with the human suffering of 100,000 people who now are essentially stateless and homeless. Well, hopefully they'll get their home in Armenia, but it is not it is not a pleasant situation for them and our care should be towards them. What you see in the conversation about self-determination is not that it's about the care of human suffering or against human suffering, but it is about a... Uh, fictional fight that then leads to very real-world consequences. So you see groups assert their right to self-determination and then start getting into a almost, I would argue, unwinnable struggle with the system around them. Rather than focusing on, hey, what are the, the actual practical problems that we face, how can we solve any sense of being oppressed if i feel if i feel that i'm limited in my freedoms how can i work on that it becomes a unwinnable fight towards my ethnicity or my nationality deserves to be recognized according to westphalian rules and the consequence of that is that you will never get what you want at least it's very unlikely that you get what you want, but you will open a whole can of worms that could eventually lead to violence, could lead lead to disruption, and might actually make the situation much worse for you or for other people who are being affected.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you've already mentioned the example of uh, Catalonia and Spain, right? With the people of Catalonia, well, it already feels interesting to say the people of Catalonia, right? But people who live in Catalonia... Um, and, you know, they have a separate language, they have a bit of a separate culture, they have a lot of autonomous rights. Uh, Spain is one of the more decentralized countries, uh, at least in Europe. Um, but they want more and they push for more, right? And there, it might only be a small group, you know, there's not, not a real clear picture of how many people actually support that. But it has led to an awful lot of damage. Uh, I mean this, this was especially in, in the year that I moved to Spain in 2017 when uh, when the legal referendum was held um and led to you know a lot of protests a lot of very nasty images with police kind of cracking down on them with now politicians or, or certain or former leaders of the movement uh, living in exile uh, in other countries not not being uh, able to come back to to Spain or some some of them even being in jail Th- that's damaging and it, it kind of folk it kind of refocuses society's conversation away from what does Spain need to do in order to, I don't know, be economically prosper and let's say maybe save the climate? It moves it towards, okay, what are we doing with Catalonia? And um, actually right now uh, is paralyzing them a little bit in forming a new government.
1: Yes, and this is where you can see how it becomes a fight about symbolism. And I'm sure that if some Catalans, well, a lot of Catalans fortunately don't, are overly sensitive about this. But some people might listen to this podcast and get very upset about this. But the fight in Catalonia is not anything near anything relatable to Nagorno-Karabakh or anything like that. Because the difference here is that in Nagorno-Karabakh, you have 100,000 people who've just lost their homes, who uh, actually have something to fear. If you live in Barcelona or in the rest of Catalonia, your life is absolutely fine. The one thing you don't have is Westphalian autonomy. Absolutely. But hey, neither do I. Neither do you. Our lives, our lives are are are, are pretty good, right? Um, and this is where the conversation turns about symbolism more than anything else. And very interesting to observe here is how our beloved Guardian, the publication we love to quote to criticize, um often has a tendency to write about Catalonia as if it is an oppressed state, as if there is something deeply horrifying happening within Catalonia. Because the Guardian has this automatic kind of approach of, oh, there is a group that claims that they're being oppressed, we need to support them without actually looking at any practical reality of what is life like in Barcelona or anywhere else. If um you actually want to have a serious conversation about Cata- Catalunya. you you're going to have to find a mechanism to determine what it is to be Catalan, why being Catalan distinguishes you from being um, Galician, or distinguishes you from being um, Madrileño, and how you actually put this into a practical framework. And given that nobody ever in the world, not just in Catalonia but ever manages to do that in an effective way without the tides of politics being in favor um, you run into the problem that every group claiming self-determination runs into so this this conversation um is a conversation that detracts from the things that matter human suffering deeply matters this kind of symbolism leads to disruption that actually often leads to greater human suffering unnecessarily so I, I must point out there here that um, a l- very long time ago I was invited to a conference in, in Catalonia and um, it was supposed to be about Palestinian people and it turned out to be basically a conference that equated the plight of the Palestinians to the plight of the Catalans as if these were similar because both were two groups who did not have the right of self-determination according to the narrative of the conference. And I was absolutely horrified by it. Uh, The idea, I mean, I try not to get outraged in life. It's it's not a productive um, state of mind. But it is horrifying for anyone to compare the situation of Catalonia to the situation of the Palestinians. It is so outside of the realm of reality. And the only way that can happen is by um, just clinging on to such broadly vaguely defined concept as the right to self-determination
0: yeah the situation is exactly the same of course I mean if you have have you looked at Barcelona I mean it's um,
1: it's insane it's, I I don't but but this is what these concepts do it, 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 this is the problem with these kinds of concepts it creates such a warped image of reality Um. And any Catalan who feels that they're in the same boat as the Palestinians need to go and visit the West Bank or Gaza, and then come back and tell me with uh, with their eyes looking at me that that, that that Barcelona is the same. And what now?
0: And where do we go from here? Um, so what's the what's the future um, with 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 the system of of self determination? Uh, what do we do with this now?
1: well we're moving the world is moving in a direction of greater anarchy there's less control for better or worse right but the decline of the sort of the western dominance means that there at least at the moment there doesn't seem to be a model replacing that which means that it becomes more of a fight between the powerful um, anarchy means you know that if you are uh, able to defend yourself if you're able to ...project your power, you're going to do well. And if you don't have that kind of influence, then you're going to suffer. And that is the, the direction that the world is moving into. And as a result, um, what, what will happen is that politics... ...is going to be less conducive to supporting um, self-determination... ...because there's no longer that Western kind of you know sympathy for self-determination... And if any groups at any point are successful in claiming autonomy or even independence based on the conversation of self-determination, then that is purely because the politics go in their favor because the the global powers that be, the Chinese or the Indians or the Russians or the, the Americans support you in that sense. The philosophical conversations about the right of self-determination will very likely become less relevant simply because all of these kinds of dynamics are becoming less relevant, the UN is becoming less relevant, Uh, we no longer are moving towards a world in which we share the same principles and values, we're moving away from that and so self-determination as a concept, concept is one of the first victims in that sense.
0: This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on self-determination. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to Westernbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western Bubble. That is it from my side. Alder. which closing quote did you pick for us today?
1: This is a quote from the great, late Nelson Mandela, who said... To be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others.